0: Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence, and we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we do consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 24th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 23, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 16, episode 24, or what the German regionalization team named The Condemned Woman. I'm your host, John. So before we get started in earnest, we've got a little bit of bureau business this time around. And um, it's actually kind of a lot of bureau business. Uh, Anthony of Twin Peaks Grammar uh, interviewed myself and John Thorne uh, for about two hours uh, where we compared and contrasted our major Twin Peaks theories. We talked about our process of creating our theories. Uh, You know, it's it's uh, it's. Pretty much something that I have wanted to do uh, for a while. So I'm really glad for the opportunity. And I had a lot of fun doing it. And it sounds like the other guys did, too. So, uh, yeah, it's worth a look. Uh, It's up on Twin Peaks Grammar, uh, the the Twin Peaks Grammar YouTube channel. And there's an audio-only version on the podcast, Artists Love Twin Peaks. Um, on both formats, our episode is titled the cow jumped over the moon in parentheses with John Bernardi and John Thorne. And I've also been out on another thing. I, uh, I checked off another one of my twin peaks bucket list items by finally having a conversation with Joel Baco on his, uh, twin peaks conversation series. Um, yeah, I, uh. I've I've been in the same <laughs> circuit as Joel uh, ever since the Sparkwood and Twenty One podcast. Uh, uh, what do you call it? The uh, the feedback section, and um, we haven't actually been able to speak one on one in a room, um, you know, since. So it's been almost nine years coming. Anyway, you can find that one on the Lost in the Movies YouTube channel for the first 50 minutes of it. And then there's another hour and a half of the conversation on Joel's Patreon. As far as the uh, conversation episode itself, uh, we did talk about, um, my between two worlds theory, um, as far as like how it works in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's a, it's a little bit clearer and it's definitely different conversation than what I did with John and Anthony. And, um, basically uh we also talked about the state of fandom you know like from you know like what it was like to be a twin peaks fan all the way from 1990 all the way through like the uh the 2014 period up until the show came out all that stuff um you know since we both have kind of a history in it it's uh it it was neat to lay it all out but um that is not the topic of today which is episode 23 In episode 23, Cooper and Harry listen to Earl's full death mask adorned audio message and call in Pete to arrange the next chess move. Hank threatens Harry with information that implicates Josie in Andrew Packard's murder, but Andrew's alive and spends all episode with Catherine arranging a deadly endgame between Josie and Thomas. Ben brings John Justice Wheeler to town to save his business, Nadine breaks up with Ed, Hank goes to prison, Ed proposes to Norma, Donna lets James roam free, Leo makes arrows, and Shelley, Donna, and Audrey combine the poem from Earl. Albert unsuccessfully pushes Cooper to arrest Josie, Harry tries to find Josie, and Josie dies in front of guns drawn Cooper and Harry after killing Eckert, and Harry yells, but before Bob comes out to taunt Cooper. The man from another place dances on the bed, and Josie's face tries to push beyond the wooden furniture. Her spirit appears to now be trapped in. So, using everything that we know from Twin Peaks, nineteen ninety, all the way through the end of uh, the the Frostbook, uh, Final Dossier, including season three, uh, what questions are we left with here? So, what cycles are closing? What cycles are beginning? And What happened to Josie? And before we go ahead and answer that, we are going to take a look behind the curtain, as we always do, into the production history of the time. So like episode 17, this is another pivot point of an episode. Um, It's the end of... Of the uh, previous six episodes worth of storylines, uh, there's an epilogue to James's storyline here. Uh, Hank is finally sent away as promised for <laughs> the last number of episodes. Uh, this is the end of many stable relationship dynamics, uh, which is a bigger focus than even I would have imagined before rewatching it. Here, uh, you know, Shelley's back at the diner, uh, and of course, the Josie storyline. But like episode 17 kind of cut off the, uh, you know, put an epilogue on the Leland killed Laura storyline. Um, this is also an episode that has a lot of different beginnings too. Um, so yeah, all the plots that were kind of, uh, built from that point forward, trying to take the show in a new direction are all getting kind of closed off besides when um, you know this is the beginning of uh you know the queens receiving their letters uh this is um you know so that's amped up and growing into a new phase so even though earl's been here the whole you know the last uh the last handful of episodes um you can tell that this is like a shifting game changing kind of moment where um that's going to go in a whole new area um we've got ed and norma uh, finally able to be a couple here we've got mike and nadine via explanation but you know they're <laughs> new couples are being introduced here um uh you know obviously uh john justice wheeler and uh annie on the phone call you know it's like all relationships are taking a central um position this episode and um you know that you know the introduced love interests uh I think what they're doing is essentially trying to make good on the love stories they wanted to put in in this six episode block of episodes. Um, you know, it, it didn't happen there between Cooper and Audrey, but they found a way over the course of all the rewrites to make them still have, um, you know, romantic arcs to be fulfilled. And sure, you know Heather Graham isn't actually present here. She um and he's only mentioned on that one phone call with Norma, but um her reflections about John Justice Wheeler. We've got Billy Zane kind of summing up the character. He said, "I loved the there was this Gary Cooper like sweetness to John Justice." And um that really does come off here and um I, I like the subtlety of the character. The the approach that Zane had on um, you know, being subtle even though (laughs) it's a show that had, you know, Dick Tremaine and Andy and, uh, you know, like things like that kind of, um, you know, amplified over the last handful of episodes. And, you know, honestly, it's a lot different from Andrew Packard and Thomas Eckert who are, um, you know, more comparable new characters. Um, yeah. So I like his understated approach. Um, but, you know, as far as how Sherilyn Fenn reacted to it, about Billy Zane, she said, he's funny, he's sweet in person. But about the storyline, she said, but it wasn't right. The story just didn't work. So she's kind of pining for the, uh, the last six and a half episodes that could have been. Yeah, while we do have the new characters coming in, uh, we've got a lot of old, char- a lot of old characters leaving uh, this episode. We've got David Warner. I mean, you know, Thomas Ecker was obviously just a quick guest star, like you know, Michael Parks was as Jean Renault, uh, rather than you know a recurring villain who could reappear one day. Um, but you know. Uh, there are regular cast members here too. I mean, Chris Mulkey who played Hank, um, who played Hank Jennings, he left the show here Uh, and he didn't want to leave. You know, you could tell that um, with, with the way they exited the show. um, You know, I mean, Peggy Lipton had some words about his behavior in her biography too. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in the actual scene, but um, yeah, he was mad to go. Uh James Marshall actually asked if he could um, you know, stop the show temporarily so that he could film a movie, which was Gladiator that will come out the next year. It's uh kind of a boxing movie. Co stars Cuba Gooding Jr. Um You know, I, I know I've I've seen the ad in uh, comic books uh from the day. <laughs> uh but yeah, like I, I haven't actually watched it. But yeah, he did he did leave so that he could film that movie here, And uh, I think they found a really nice way to get him off the show for a little while and leave room to come back, because um, I mean, you know then you know, comparatively, we have Joan Chen around the same time also wanting to leave to film a movie, but she asked to be written out in uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped about Joan Chen wanting to leave and leaving. Uh, Harley Payton had this to say. He said. For David, I think it was, if Joan doesn't want to do Twin Peaks, then Joan doesn't have to do it. That wouldn't really be the way things would be done, usually. On most TV shows, okay, you want to leave the show, you're going to be here for the rest of the season, then you can leave. We all know examples of actors being killed because they weren't happy. That certainly happens, but I think in this case there was a freer attitude. I think, amongst everyone that allowed for that. And so as a writer, you just had to sort of field it and do your best job. In other words, if you know that certain characters were going to be gone or wouldn't be available or were doing something else, I mean, is that uh, Peyton here nodding to James Marshall's situation as well? Uh, Likely. Um, Well, uh, Peyton continues. You just had to write around that and then sometimes just hope for the best. And in Reflections, Joan Chen said, I remember I actually wanted out because there was a film I wanted to do. The film was a big failure, but I really was passionate about that story. Who in their right mind would want out of something like that? Meaning Twin Peaks. I asked to be written out and it was very naive. It's interesting that... um, their approach to writing out Josie happened to involve the mythology. I mean, the mythology is returning here since, uh, you know, the basically the first time since episode 17, um, with, uh, you know, I mean, Briggs's, um, White Lodge experience. Um, and, you know, sure, he's had White Lodge memories around here. Um, and, you know, there have been, um, you know, like Andy's weird thought balloon about Nikki is the devil. We've had uh, uh, a moving image of Caroline as Cooper spoke, but um, there's not really any like actual lodginess uh, present at this point. Um, And, you know, suddenly we've got the red room being alluded to and um, we get um, Josie ending up in the drawer knob. Now the Twin Peaks unwrapped book, um uh, posted a thing from the red room podcast number 125 with Todd Holland about Josie um Holland said I called up Leslie and was like what the fuck was that and she goes I don't know they didn't tell you anything he he's saying now in um you know the the royal they <laughs> they didn't tell you anything they said here's what you're doing and you did it it, it really is remarkable for a series where you're working in, working in the blind and there wasn't a writer sitting beside you every second to help make sure that you didn't veer off the narrative. Nowadays, there would be somebody there who had a bigger sense of the big picture, but the directors only knew what was on the page. You knew what was behind you and what was on the page. You had no idea what the next episode was indicating or what it was going to be. It was, It made it fun. Now, as far as why the, the knob, uh, in Reflections, Trisha, Bo- uh, Tr- <laughs> Trisha Brock says, that had to be Lynch and Frost. I don't remember writing that, but that's totally their sensibility. I loved it. I thought it was so inventive. Whether it was effective or not, it was so far ahead of its time. I consider it a privilege to be a part of it. And also in Reflections, we've got Harley Payton saying, you know what, that's a David thing. That was one of those moments where I thought, what the fuck is this? I really felt in the moment that this is a jump the shark moment, and it's just fucking stupid. It was totally David and nobody else. It was his thing. He wanted to do it. And my memory is that Mark tried to talk him out of it. I could be wrong, but it's something I saw 10 years later and went, Oh, okay. That was sort of awesome. <laughs> and in reflections, we've got Leslie Linka gladder talking about the how, and uh, she said that definitely went to an extreme, and also the special effects were not that sophisticated at the time, so figuring out how to put her in the drawer pole was not self-evident at all there were There were lots of tests. I remember seeing all these different versions of that until we came up with something that everyone liked that was hotly debated and rightfully so. So that was a lot of production history. And, um, now we're going to look at what the, uh, what the ratings had to say about this. Um, right before this episode aired, the hiatus was announced by ABC on February 16th, the same day as this episode aired. So, um, Last week's ratings were the final strike against Twin Peaks uh, as far as the network was concerned, you know, and uh, the the general feeling around town was that this could be it for Twin Peaks. You know, like the, whatever had been made after this, um, there are good odds that it would never actually air on television as far as who watched alive, it was 7.8 million viewers, um, which is still 4,000, 400,000 less than last week's episode. And, um, you know, the first act, you know, the first drop under 8 million viewers. So, you know, just because the announcement happened, maybe, you know, people didn't hear it and that slowed things down, but, um, you know, there, there wasn't this giant flocking to the show like, Oh, we got to see it off. We've got to show them that we'll come back. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I'll I'll be talking about Coop and you know the other stuff that tries to save the show next week. But as for right now, um I'm just gonna go into my own reaction for watching it. So the first time I saw it was during the Bravo reruns in nineteen ninety five and um You know, seeing an episode of Twin Peaks for the first time when I was 17 made a big difference because I wasn't actually terrified of Bob's appearances afterward. You know, it didn't, uh, you know, the imagery in this episode didn't latch on like the stuff like him in a mirror. So, you know, it was, it was kind of nice in that way, (laughs) you know, it was a good way to show that I was growing up and, um, yeah, also I kind of feel like, um, there was a little bit to do with the narrative on that too. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Leslie Lincoln Glider's use of like, you know, the visual and the audio motifs, like the, uh, the lighting, the sounds like it all matched up with, you know, even the things that Lynch was using in episode 14. Um, but I, I think more why it didn't really bother me too much is because Bob was more of like a post-game commentator on all the action this time, you know, rather than an actual participant, like, uh, like you know like all the loginess came as and after uh Josie died and i i think if uh you know Bob wasn't sitting back so much and just taunting Cooper um yeah there there might have been something in there for me to you know <laughs> get uncomfortable about okay so we looked at the production history we looked at the um the uh, ratings reaction to it um you know talked about the hiatus Uh, but, um, as far as what, um, what Lynch remembered about this whole thing, we're going to look at what he did in 1993 with the log lady intro. And Margaret says a hotel, a nightstand, a drawer pull on the drawer, a drawer pull of a nightstand in a room of a hotel. What could possibly be happening on, on or in this drawer pull? How many drawer pulls exist in this world? Thousands, maybe millions? What is a drawer pull? This drawer pull, why is it featured so prominently in a life or in a death of one woman who was caught in a web of power? Can a victim of power end in any way connected to a drawer pull? How can this be? So first thoughts about the beginning of this thing, you know, like um, how many drawer pulls exist in the world after zooming out, you know, a hotel, a nightstand, looking in a drawer pull on a drawer and then, you know, like coming back out again and going wider and like, you know, how many drawer pulls are in the world, you know, thousands, maybe millions. Um, it kind of feels like, you know, it, it's, it's like a quantum physics adjacent thought. You know, like, where there's, like, you know, multiple realities, multiple this. And, um, you know, as the drawer pull is kind of a connector to uh, Lodge Space, I kind of feel like that's instinctive with Lynch to make that connection. And also, I mean, in nods to how everything is fractal in um, in Twin Peaks lore and in Twin Peaks, really. Uh, referring to Josie as a victim of power, um, you know, it's like no matter... No matter how much he actually wanted the power and how much he was trying to control the power before this um you know Lynch did not lose sight of how you know power can overwhelm you know a simple human person <laughs> in in the grand scheme of things you know it's like the energy is too much for any one person, and um you know it's like he always recognizes when someone is a victim to something even even if you know they kind of led themselves down a path to get there, he he still always remembers the humanity and um yeah. Yeah, he he understands where Josie is in this. But as far as, you know, how a victim of power ending in any way connected to a drawer pole, how can this be? I kind of feel like that is still a mystery to lynch um and you know this was the the mystery that was introduced by lynch and you know it's like i i think he wanted to give himself something that he could still be thinking about in 1993 you know it's like you, you can watch him puzzling it out even in this intro you know like um and you can see kind of like i i think how he does the uh the wild mythology stuff that like, you know, is just instinctive to him. I think he does it so that he can give himself something to dream about to keep him in this world. You know, it's like, it feels right. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase John Thorne's conclusions to a uh, train of thought that we were talking about on that uh, uh, Twin Peaks grammar episode that I talked about in Bureau business. Um, Yeah. It's like Lynch thinks it's cool is kind of the, the end result of how we thought about, you know, that one scene in Cooper, uh, where, where Cooper's in the glass box and he's like going forward, uh, and backward and forward and backward. Um, you know, it's like, we, we were talking about it and, um, you know, it's like Lynch thinks it's cool, but it also has to fit. And, um, you know, the these are John Thorne's words I'm paraphrasing. You know, he barely has to use uh, he barely has his hands around what it is. He doesn't want uh, he doesn't want to grab it too tightly. He wants to let it kind of flow and he accepted that visual because it worked in an intuitive way where you can if you want to, you can start to interpret it. Whereas a different way of showing Cooper leaving the box wouldn't work. He would reject it. He would say that it just doesn't feel right. He just knows what looks right and goes with it without overthinking it. And I'm absolutely in lockstep with that kind of with that kind of explanation, and think that right here is another example where the uh, you know the drawer pull and Josie is just you know that same kind of thing. Alright, so before we get into the episode proper, we are going to hear some words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. You've been listening to another fine, fine podcast on the Rumination Radio Network. This is Game Agent E.T. from Oh God, It Hurts! And we hope you keep on listening to our fine, fine podcast here on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right. So welcome back to this episode. We're going to look into the questions that we're left with. And the first one that I wanted to look at was what cycles are closing and the cycles that are closing are all pretty much relationship centric here. Um, you know, we've got Harry and Josie, obviously, um, which of course I'm going to get back to later in the Josie section, but we also have, um, you know, characters like James and Donna. They're ending here. You know, they they start out in the forest. It's out you know, the the outdoors, you know, Donna's on the path and James arrives on his bike. Um, you know, she says that she wanted to go to a place that they've never been to before. And you know, she's got a picnic spread. And um, you know, I, I think she's just trying to size up their relationship as far as the epilogue to the Evelyn stuff that he's been a part of, he says, you know, the police asked him a bunch of questions he couldn't answer, but the answers he did know must've been enough. And Evelyn's going to stand trial and James will be a witness. And that's the last thing we ever hear about Evelyn and the Marchland, So that's, that's a good thing. Um, and uh, you know, then what do we have left with James and Donna? We, it switches back over to their relationship and he's, you know, Um, he made some kind of comment about, you know, wearing the ring and, um, you know, the, the ring that he gave her before he left in episode 16, like two scenes later, um, you know, the promise ring and, um, you know, Donna doesn't respond at all to it, except for, she says, I know about you and Evelyn. And, you know, she doesn't level any guilt at James here. She she thinks Evelyn took advantage of what he was feeling. And, you know, she says it's OK for James to feel bad about what happened to him. And then, um, you know, so she's she's forgiving him right here and says, you know, please come home with me. But either James can't accept that forgiveness or, you know, he still has more of a quest to do <laughs> with with himself. And he says, I can't not right now. And, you know, he says a few other things and she ends up agreeing with him because I think she can see the wishy-washy. And, uh, and, you know, then, um, you know, once she agrees that she'll be able to let him go, then he asks, you know, what about you? You know, like, how do you react to this, essentially? And, you know, she's pretty grown up about this whole scene, you know, rather than being filled with teenage angst, you know, like, why can't you come? You know, she didn't turn it into an argument. She says, you can't worry about me anymore. I've been a part of all the horrible things that have happened. I want to be a part of something good now. So she's actually kind of in Norma's range of, uh, of uh, self-understanding here. You know, she's establishing boundaries for what she wants to experience. And, you know, she's working with what she has. Um, you know, it's uh, she's kind of showing a side of herself here that probably relates to being that rock that Laura could lean on if uh, Laura chose to accept to lean on a rock. Um, and, you know, we get a range of actual emotional intelligence from Donna here. And, um, you know, she's defining her self-worth, which is great to see. You know, I'm going to love to see how this goes into the uh, who's who's my daddy storyline that she deals with. But, uh, you know, as of right here, it looks like she's um, she's going to start growing like Norma. And, you know, she sets the boundary. She says, James, go take all the time you need. And, um, you know, James says, I love you. Because I think he feels understood here, even though he doesn't understand himself. Um, but you know what? What I think is absolutely hilarious is that Donna doesn't say "I love you" back. She shifts into "I'm gonna miss you like crazy," but you'll go away and you'll come back with great stories, and none of them are going to be about Laura or Maddie or Evelyn, and I'll be here. So she name checks Laura and Maddie. So like this is actually. Probably the real last time that we hear about Maddie. But it's nice to see that they're acknowledging their their history and that they're giving Maddie some humanity. But, you know, then Donna's establishing more boundaries when James says, come with me. And Donna, you know, I mean, she's crying because I think part of her kind of wants to. But then she says no. And, um, you know, then he says, well, then I'll come back. I promise. And, um, you know, he's basically ready to leave town forever with his main girl (laughs) as he as He's thinking about it right here. Um, So, you know, it's sort of a romantic moment in a teenage kind of way. And, you know, they kiss and it seems like Donna wants to believe that he'll come back, but maybe just can't actually believe that he'll do it. Um, but you know, they end up, uh, they end up kissing all the way down onto the picnic blanket. Um, you know, like it's going to turn into more intimacy between them. So, uh, you know, it cuts to a commercial break there, but, um, you know, how does Donna seem to be reacting to this, uh, when we see her next? Well, um, she's, uh, she's in the roadhouse with Shelly talking about the, the poem that they got and, you know, that they're meeting there for it. Um But, you know, Shelly offers her a drag and she keeps Shelly's cigarette afterward Um, when, you know, so so either Donna's being selfish there or maybe she's distracted, Um, you know, despite putting on a brave front about, you know, like diving into this new mystery, you know, but, you know, maybe she's hurting inside. Who knows? But um, as of right now, she's really strong and doing the boundaries thing. And that's great the next relationship closing a door here is nadine and ed and um i think it's honestly the direct model for the story side that'll happen in part 15 you know the story elements that allow um nadine to let go ed is happening here too and um You know, it's uh, it starts in the Hurley house and Ed is the one actually arranging Nadine's knickknacks. So I think he's rebuilding the shelf for her that um, Nadine threw Hank through um, back uh, back a couple episodes ago. And, um, you know, Ed's kind of putting it back the way it was, uh, as he always does, you know, kind of, like you know, status quo stuff for him. And, um, you know, Nadine comes home then and, you know, she, she's here early and she's very upset about something and, you know, Ed's trying to find out, you know, it's like, are you, are you okay? And, um, you know, she just says, don't. And, you know, we get, um, the bass guitar only version of the Twin Peaks theme while she's talking here and, uh, you know, like, like she's only half there or half present somehow, um. Or, you know, she's out of sync with her own age, so, like, you know, why wouldn't she get a weird version of the Twin Peaks theme while she's being incredibly earnest and honest about things? And, you know, she's saying, you know, Eddie, we have to talk. Mike and I are in love, Uh, you know, which, you know, we haven't seen her and Mike together since the double R when she kind of assault kissed him. Um, So, you know there's this element of unreliable narrator here that, um, you know, it's going off in my head anyway. Uh, and I would imagine that it would for first time viewers, you know, is she being delusional here? But, you know, by the time Ed comes in, then, you know, the regular Twin Peaks theme is now playing. So, you know, it's like, who knows, maybe, maybe he's now kind of in sync with her thought process rather than not knowing where she's coming from. Um, but you know, he just says in love about her and Mike, And, um, you know, Nadine says, you know, she hopes Ed's not hurt. She doesn't want to hurt him, you know? So she's trying to be, um, you know, positive about this whole thing. You know, it's basically, she's outgrown her past and her, her previous needs. And, um, you know, now she feels free here to actually do something about it. You know, she feels like she's safe in her, um, Her cocoon fantasy (laughs) and you know then she says um but mike and i on that wrestling trip had the most magical night together and um you know ed knowing what she's capable of she just says all night and then you know her response is you know well you and norma did it so she did recognize that um ed and norma were having a thing rather than like nadine like coming up with some fantasy element of like what they were doing uh when they were all in bed together last episode it's nice to see here that um you know nadine's not mad you know she's just observing that it happened and you know she just kind of took it as it is you know living in her present almost exclusively in that way you know observing things as they emotionally are so ed responds with you know so what's this mean And then, you know, she says, Eddie, we have to call a spade a spade. We're breaking up. And, um, you know, then they hug a goodbye hug. And, um, you know, Ed's, Ed's kind of looking off and he's very serious about this whole thing. So it almost seems like, um, he might not be completely okay with it. You know, the way he kind of gives this non-answer here, uh, just that there is one like deep inside and his, uh you know in in his stalwart roots <laughs> but you know we'll see where ed is in a in a little bit you know a few scenes from now um when he goes to the double r and uh proposes to norma and um you know he does go just like in part 15 you know the first thing ed did in there uh, after he was released by Nadine, was hustle over to the diner to propose to Norma. In that part 15, uh, Norma disengages from Walter on her own. But, you know, here in this episode, we've got um, Ed's proposal freeing Norma from her current anchor, Hank. And, um, you know, this is when uh, that that's basically the trigger for Norma to go to the jail cell and um, cut ties with Hank. And we've got Hank, you know, this is his final scene. He's laying down in a bunk as Norma enters. And, um, you know, Norma starts out just kind of coldly saying, how are you feeling? And, uh, you know, he comes over, he's playing up his crutches injury, you know. And, um, you know, she asks him straight out instead of falling for his immediate charms. "Um, Hank, I've come here to ask you for a divorce. We get Hank's full range of persuasion on display here. Yeah, He starts out with the sweet talking. He says, I don't blame you. You gave me a second chance and I blew it. Um, you know, so he knows he's self-destructive. He has a lot of work to do to get well. He decided he's going to go into therapy. Um, you know, he, he straight out says, I don't want to be like this anymore. And all Norma says is, that's very interesting, Hank, but I have to get on with my life. And, you know, he makes physical contact with her at this point. You know, he touches her hair and says, I know you do. I just want you to be happy, which just echoes Ed's words too. Um, you know, just wants her to be happy. And, you know, all, all she says here for that is thank you. And, you know, because she just accepts that as, you know, not just persuasion, but what he really thinks, you know, then he goes into his next tack, which is bargaining and guilt. You know, he says, I want you to do me one last favor. I want you to help get me out of here. If they send me back to prison, I'll die. So he wants an alibi that he was at the restaurant when Leo was shot. And, you know, you know, he's trying to get her to be his, uh, co-conspirator on that one. And, um, all Norma says that is no more lies, Hank. And then, you know, he's like, now the guilt really kicks in and he's like, it's not lying. It's trying to save my life. And you know, she says, no. And at this point. You know, we're we're getting Hank doing the same thing that he just did to Harry at the beginning of the episode. You know, at the, at the beginning, you know, we've got Harry reading the paper, uh, with the uh no clues of a killer of Jonathan. You know, like he's just reading that newspaper, and um, you know, we got Hank coming in on crutches with Hank, and um, you know, Hank learns that there's a witness to him shooting Leo, so he promises nonchalantly, you know, he promises a trade with Harry. You know, and you know now that he knows that someone saw him uh, shooting Leo, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to give information. You, he's going to trade his freedom for being, you know, a star witness to the prosecution for the arrest and conviction of Andrew Packard's murderer. And you know, Harry puts his foot down too and says, "No deals." And, you know, then Hank shifts over to threats there, you know, talking about how the constituents won't like that Harry's sleeping with the person who pushed the button on Andrew. And, you know, this is when Hawk kicks out a crutch and, uh, you know, we've got Harry being all riled up and he says, you know, get him out of here. And then, you know, the second time he says, get him out of here. It's the first time we've ever heard Harry yell really. And, um, you know, that kind of bookends Harry, but, uh, you know, we, we've got Hank basically, having power over the situation by getting under Harry's skin. But in the jail cell scene with Norma, you know, Norma isn't riled at all by any of these techniques so far. And, you know, he ups it to basically, you know, the thing that he couldn't, you know, the, the level he didn't need to get to in Harry's office, he he brings in here. And, you know, it's total anger and intimidation. Um, you know, I mean, he he sort of tried to intimidate Harry, but, you know, he never had to get loud about it. And he's like, oh, is it Ed? Is that who you're running to? And then he pulls her to the bars uh, with actual force. And, um, you know, this is, um, this is where, like, it wasn't actually rehearsed. You know, he pulls her face into those bars um, in the moment without talking about it, without Peggy Lipton having any chance to plan for that. And, um, you know, then he says, "Okay, here's the deal. You give me an alibi and I give you your divorce. And Norma says, I didn't come here to negotiate with you. This is it. It's over. And you can tell Peggy Lipton is genuinely mad in this scene for the, you know, the undiscussed physicality. You know, now now Hank switches over to shame and says, "Okay, go ahead. You're his whore, Norma. And, you know, this is where we get the line that gets used in Titanic later on with uh, similar characters as Twin Peaks, um, where she says, I'd rather be his whore than your wife. And then she walks out with zero hesitation. And we've got Hank, you know, his his no options left. Uh, Like he, he wasn't able to persuade his way out like he always does. And, um, with no options left, what we get is him yelling her name twice and, you know, he's shaking the bars with his hands in rage. And, um, instead of Harry being the one riled after all his negotiation techniques, we've got Hank being the one riled, you know, the power is flipped. And I think honestly, the power was flipped before that because we've got our next question starting where we're going to look at what cycles are beginning. And, you know, we've got Norma using her power with Hank, um, but, you know, what, what else is she doing with that power? She's believing in her and Ed being able to be a couple in public now. And, you know, her and Ed as a public couple is one of those cycles that is beginning here. Um, you know, she, she was free to ask for that divorce because Ed proposed and, um, at this point in the episode, you know, Hank's had his crutches kicked out. Norma hangs up with Annie uh, from the phone. Uh, Shelley gets her Wyndham Earl letter, and um, it's at this point in the diner when Ed absolutely interrupts by looking totally serious. He beelines through the door, flips open the uh, the counter, walks behind the counter, and in the most dramatic way possible, you know, he's all serious. Um, and, you know, he grabs her and he spins her into the gone with the wind pose where he's kind of leaning her back and uh, says, Norma Jennings, I've loved you every day for the past 20 years. I dream about you every night. It's time for us to be together. And essentially that echoes exactly what she said to him three episodes earlier in episode 20, back when they had to just be in Ed's house. Um You know, it's before the first time they get intimate. and, and in in that episode anyway and you know all Ed can say there to answer her is later and you know what this is later <laughs> so you know he's finally brave enough to finally do something about it too i mean sure you know Nadine kind of had to let him free first before he felt like he could uh because you know he feels that responsibility that trauma guilt for like shooting out her eye and everything else So, yeah, like, you know, now that she allows him to not feel responsible for all of that history, he's allowed to kind of do what he wants to do, too. And, um, you know, he he basically just parrots back uh, because he means it, um, everything that Norma said, and then ends with, will you marry me? And, you know, she just says, Ed. And um, then he adds that extra line. You deserve to be happy. It's our turn, babe. And, um, you know, then there's just massive kissing between those two <laughs> and it cuts to commercial break, but, you know, uh, it, it, you know, cutting the commercial break rather than, you know, panning up to the sun over the top of the diner, like it did in part 15 of season three. Um, you know, there, that kind of implies that there's going to be more to come from Anna norma this time. And, um, I, I can't imagine anybody who's not as thrilled as Shelly is here. And, um, and probably my favorite all time Twin Peaks gif, where, you know, Shelly's just like, you know, smiling and backing away and like being really coy. Like, you know, it's like, ooh, I'm, I, you know, it's like, and then like, you know, she kind of like leans her head around the corner as she leaves the scene and everything. And she's just like, she's so happy for Norma and she's so happy for Ed and she just loves love. And, um, it's just so infectious. But of course, mentioning uh, Shelly, that goes into what she's also associated with in this episode, which is um, that, you know, Earl's queens get their message in this episode and that That part of the cycle is beginning, too. So, you know, the poem shows up. You know, Audrey gets her envelope that was delivered last episode to the concierge desk. And, you know, right after right after she meets John Justice Wheeler at the concierge desk for the first time, uh, she and the score completely turn their attention to the envelope after he leaves. Um, And, you know, she just reads aloud, you know, save the one you love. Please attend a gathering of angels tonight at the Roadhouse, 930. And, um, you know, then we see a picture of the note that she just read before it goes to commercial break. Um, You know, we get Shelly receiving that earl letter while Norm is talking to Annie at the diner right before Ed comes in. Um, And, you know, she reads, uh, you know, Roadhouse 930. But, you know, we can't explore that right then any further you know, like, who was it? And, you know, no no questions about who it was right there because Ed completely derails the whole thing. And, uh, you know, memory being what it is in Twin Peaks, we just don't get answers there. And uh, we also don't get to see how Donna got her note. But, you know, she's there to um, put her note piece up against Shelly's um, note piece. And then, you know, we get Audrey's uh piece of paper swooping in two to form the full poem once more and uh audrey's voice basically says looks like we all have something to talk about you know all we we don't get further from that either but you know we do have uh earl dressed as a trucker um watching them from the other side of that bar um you know it's like you know that seeing them all Accepting his invitation to meet at nine thirty, you can see that he's moving on to phase three of his plan. And, you know, phase one being the uh, the vagrant that you know is pointing to the chess piece. Uh, phase phase two is um phase two is everything that he's done with Leo up to this point with uh getting the messages to the girls, and now that they're ensnared, um, you know, what's the rest of the phase have in it? well it definitely has something to do with making arrows because um the other earl scene that we get in here is you know it's like there it we we get to see the outside scene you know there's his flute music cue showing us that it's going to be an earl scene and uh, we've got leo whittling arrow posts on a log and um you know Earl's singing inside, and he comes outside, and you know he approaches Leo and says, "Good job, fella, good boy," and uh, basically implies that you know a few more of these that Leo makes, and uh, then they'll eat. And you know Leo's just kind of looking at him, smiling like a dog. You know, it's like, "Yeah, I did a good thing. I made them," and uh, he's happy about it. And then um, you know Earl just you know puts an arrowhead on one of the sticks, and you know one of them cuts Earl a bit, and you. Know, the only way he ends that part of the scene is, you know, basically saying nature is cruel. This is also a lesson. So is that like a, you know, a natural object just does what it, what it's built to do. Is that the kind of thing? And like, is um, Earl talking about his own nature um, being cruel? Is he talking about human nature being cruel? Um, I I think basically he's trying to use human nature in a way, similarly to how Mister C um, uses people's human nature, um, you know, referring to Phyllis, uh, you know, saying like you've uh, you've uh, shown human nature perfectly, or whatever, whatever that he says to her. Um, it, it's interesting that Earl notes human nature here now, but you know what what's he going to use the human nature for, along with his queens? Well, it all ends up further ensnaring cooper the episode actually begins with a camera panning across an owl statuette under a small bell jar uh, which is next to the death mask from last episode and a chessboard and the audio picks up right where the audio left off last time where earl is saying listen carefully it's your move um and then you know he continues and says please put your heart in it will you which so Cooper's getting a plea to invest his energy and thoughts into it, you know, he's like giving Cooper fuel, like, you know, it's like, oh, you haven't been playing the way I want you to, you know, (laughs) Uh, dive in a little further, Um, but. Um, What Earl actually says is, I've noticed a certain tentative quality to your thinking, as if your mind were occupied with issues other than those on the board before you, and such preoccupation not only weakens one's, one's resolve, but one's foresight as well. A deadly failing in any match, you must agree, but in this particular contest quite disastrous, as we play for grave stakes, the likes of which you have no doubt surmised he's really prompting cooper to get extra serious to uh to kind of be in the present with the with the game like i'm i'm trying to figure out is he actually looking for a genuine battle here a genuine rival or is he looking to psych dale out and um you know put put uh cooper into a frame of mind where he's going to end up overdoing it and losing so anyway, he says, um, you know, print your move in tomorrow's paper or I will make it for you. So, you know, now it's like, you know, get present, but also get the job done. Uh, so, you know, maybe that's where he psychs him out a little bit. But, you know, at this point, Harry doesn't want to let Cooper out of his sight because he thinks Cooper's in massive danger. And then Cooper uh, rightfully says if Earl wanted him dead, he'd already be dead. So, um, you know, Earl doesn't want Cooper dead. It's clear. But, you know, we have the death mask reinforcing how Earl is using fear to get to Cooper. You know, we have we have the Audrey's Prayer theme that, um, you know, the the questions in a world of blue uh, from Fire Walk With Me. Um, It's that it's that melody and it's playing while, um, you know, Harry brings up the mask and says she was beautiful. And um, Cooper says she was the love of my life, Harry, which is, um, you know, one. It's an interesting thing to say to a guy who's going to lose his strong love at the end of this episode uh when Josie dies but also you know she was the love of my life you know it's like he's still thinking about Caroline even though he should just be focusing on the game so I think um you know Cooper's um focusing on past traumatic love when um when he should probably be um you know, working through the fear of the current game um i I think that's how Earl's looking at it you know don't Don't be on the thing that you used to love. be on the thing that you should be fearing, and they do end up focusing on the game you know it's like sure the the scene ends with uh you know Cooper looking down on the mask, but you know we hear Pete getting the call from Lucy, and um you know later on pete's there at the station and uh you know he's saying you know there's four or five ways to do this and you know they decide in time for the deadline and um essentially how they've ended this one is they're kicking the can down the road and saying you know this this move the pete just decided should save any losses for five or six moves and um you know earl Earl won't kill anyone in the meantime because he has, as Cooper puts it, a perverse sense of honor about these things. But, you know, like I said, you know, they're kicking the can down the road. They're not actually stopping Earl here. Earl's plan is ramping up. You know, that, that thing you said a few episodes ago, next time it'll be someone you know. Um, it appears to be getting closer too because, um, you know, we're seeing the, uh, the women getting ensnared in his trap um, as, you know, potential Queens, which, you know, this, this plot line will, um, culminate at the end of episode 28. Now elsewhere in the series, we've got Ben Horn and his quest to be good, uh, coming into, coming into focus now that he's, um, you know, (laughs) now that he's retired from the civil war, um, you know, though, though, you know, at this point he's starting out way more in the gray, you know, it's like there are signs of, of good growth. You know, it's like, we've got, you know, the, the Fila track suit where, you know, it's like, okay, he's trying to be healthy. He's trying to exercise. Um, but the color scheme is black mostly with a big red stripe, um, down the center of his st- or down, down the, uh, diagonal, uh, chest area. And then, uh, we've got purple bits. So, you know, purple is for balance, but you know, you got a little bit of red and black, which is, um you know, coded for, uh, lodge space and, um, you know, the, uh, the more negative characters, but, you know, again, we've also got, um, Ben having a, uh, a big celery rather than a cigar. And I love his use of vegetables. (laughs) It's, uh, it's just always good for the humor. And, um, you know, what, what's really noticeable here besides, you know, the, uh, the trappings of I'm healthy, I'm eating healthy. Um, you know, he's, he's appearing to actually try to mentor Bobby here. Uh, you know, he says, why don't you join us at the upcoming board meeting? Um, you know, because, um, you know, board meetings are what they are, but, you know, today's is going to be something completely different. And, um, when they're at that meeting, um, he introduces Bobby to John Justice Wheeler as uh, executive assistant Bobby Briggs. So, you know, Ben's new instinct here is to um, mentor Bobby and call in someone who's been mentored. You know, he's actually asking for help. And, um, you know, we get a glimpse of this this past of Ben's. Um, with an actual successful mentorship you know it's like john justice wheeler arrives and um you know the first time he sees ben is in the door right before that meeting and you know they they hug and uh you can tell there's actually great affection between them you know what we get about um wheeler here is he used to be in construction he came up the hard way and you know audrey says oh how nice but um You know, Ben's asked John Justice Wheeler to join the board and um, basically frames it like this. Years ago, Ben made an investment in John Justice Wheeler, a pittance which he built into an empire. Now, I don't take any credit for it, but I believed in Jack, even when he was a local boy pounding nails. I've asked him to return the favor and believe in me now. And, you know, Wheeler just, you know, He's like, ah, oh, you're testing my modesty because you know he has to have that Gary Cooper charm, <laughs> but um, you know there there's also kind of a, a certain humility and a perspective from Ben too, um, because you know Ben continues and says, suffice to say, Horn Industries Inc. have fallen on hard times. The mill, the Ghostwood lands, are now solely owned by Catherine Martell. I don't begrudge her. The mill was and is, after all, hers. So in spite of these reversals and stripped of all the trappings of su- success, wh- uh, what are we left with? The human spirit. And, you know, this is when, um, you know, the swishy drums and the scrunched up faces of people reacting to him start kicking in. Like, what is this guy after? Um, but, you know, also um, the thing that uh, Thomas said to Catherine last episode about how, um, you know, um Things able to be bought are um you know easily lost and uh just as easily gained you know it's like you don't worry about the money stuff you know sometimes you lose sometimes you win, and um that's just the attitude of business people who uh you know happen to be on the uh darker side of the uh twin peaks uh alignment chart <laughs> and we do get an environmentalism angle which was all the rage i mean Chicagoland um was barely um, giving out recycle bins to its suburbs at that point. Like, I don't even know if our house there had a recycle bin until like the early nineties. And, you know, this is like, you know, maybe a couple of years away at that point, um, you know, it was either plus or minus two years. So, you know, environmentalism was a huge thing back then. And of course it in, in, uh, you know, it enters, uh, Twin Peaks too. And, um, you know, like, what, what's the angle? Uh, ben says quietly, what is the greatest gift that one human being can give to another? And, you know, we see Bobby and Audrey going like, I don't know where he's going on their faces. And then he says, the future I give you. He swipes away a, a, a tarp over a painting and uh, says, the little pine weasel found only in the Tri-County area. It is nearly extinct. And, you know, <laughs> Jerry pipes in and says, they're wonderful roasted. So, you know, we get the Horn brothers in in full effect here, which is awesome. But, um, you know, we we also get, you know, signs of the same old shady Ben popping through too. finally, you know, he says, they'll be almost wiped out with Catherine's plans for Ghostwood development. Save the weasel. Yes. And life as we know it. I want Twin Peaks to remain unspoiled in an era of vast environmental carnage. So he's framing things, but Jerry calls a spade a spade and says, so we block Catherine's development until the wheel turns and we get another shot. That's brilliant, Ben. You know, has Ben completely turned a corner? Well, he doesn't deny a thing that Jerry just said. And, um, you know, John Justice Wheeler's eyeing him up as well you know ben just says we fight this goes to a development on every ground with every available weapon the little pine weasel is about to become a household word and then you know audrey says then what and um you know ben ends it with he might consider a run for the senate where um you know his general self just uh just last episode basically said you know politicians Um, you know, while he was safe in his cocoon growing into this guy who quote unquote wants to be good, um, you know, he hasn't said that he wants to be good yet, but you know, he's kind of getting there, but, um, you know, thinking once he's out of that dream of his, as he referred to it, yes, or last episode, um, Politicians are either too cowardly or old to do the fighting themselves. So we've got um Ben possibly being cowardly here. Or, you know, is he uh is he talking about his own age and um Yeah, I don't know. I mean it, it seems like a, a loaded concept based on what he just said um the episode before. You know, so he he's kind of thinking of himself at this point as either too old or too cowardly. And um, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on in Ben's head here. And, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see him shift into this overly hopeful guy who's, um, you know, who's still not integrated yet. Um, because, you know, it's like right now, Ben kind of feels like he's somewhere in between. Um, you know, Nadine's cocoon where she's, you know, in this like total optimism, everything's working out great for me. But, you know, she has to be a cheerleader. Um, You know, it's like she's using that delusion like Ben used the Civil War. But Ben here is still kind of in that alignment where, you know, he's trying to be good and he's trying to fake it until he makes it, which kind of puts him in a not quite real way. And he's kind of balancing out for the civil war side that he just pushed through. You know, it's going to be interesting to see him becoming Wheeler's mentor. I mean, uh, we- Wheeler's mentee, uh, where, uh, you know, like how to be good comes up like loudly and actively. And really speaking about, uh, John justice Wheeler, you know, we get him in this episode, but it's also the beginning of his relationship with Audrey. You know, Audrey's being a go-getter at the concierge desk near the beginning of the episode, and um, you know, you know, she's got a non-repeat guest list that she wants to to send special invites to, and yeah, <laughs> she's uh, you know, she it, it, we we basically learned that she's learning the business in earnest now, and she's doing like one week in each department. And um, you know, she's not looking for Randy's job, just the you know, just on concierge desk this week. You know, Randy gives her SASS and Earl's letter. So, you know, based on Randy's reaction to her, you know, it's like people in in Twin Peaks are having trouble believing Audrey's change too, just like we're seeing with her dad. So her and her dad are actually kind of in lockstep here, where you know, it's like they're trying to be better people, but the people around them are um are kind of not all totally on board, and also um you know it takes a while to learn exactly how to do it without going into your old proclivities and you know we can see the earlier Audrey when she's being annoyed with her fussy you know her her name tag that isn't going on her her shirt uh, or her vest or whatever of uh, the uh you know her clothes and um you know that's when Wheeler shows up, and you know she notices that he's handsome. Um, you know, she hears that he has his own jet where there's some equipment that they're supposed to pick up for him, you know, like the wacky science experiment that we'll see in a few episodes, you know, then he connects, you know, who she is and he's visualizing Audrey as Heidi, you know, he says it's unforgettable and, uh, that he has a physical picture of this. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, nice that he had a, uh, a positive idea of, like, Audrey, like, going up on stage and, like, beaming and being, like, extremely extroverted, and then he liked it, but then she says, I was 10. So, you know, besides this giant red flag, uh, you know, that people didn't really look at so much back then, because, you know, the older 40s guy would always, um, uh, be dating the 20-something lady in, um, you know, movies and everything, you know, it was just, uh, a thing that was acceptable, um so you know pre me too stuff here um but you know if we can look aside from that and um you know accept the fact that you know um an older guy and a younger lady can be a romantic pairing it it ends up working a little bit better (laughs) and uh you know he doesn't he doesn't offer his name to her and you know he helps uh he helps an elderly couple, you know, by by like picking up something of theirs and then handing it to them, you know, like a completely chival- chivalrous dude. So, you know, she's trying to figure out who he is and you know, next time we see him it's a Ben Pine Weasel's plan reveal. Then again we see him at dinner with just Ben and and her um in the Great Northern. And you know, we get Audrey trying to understand his deal. You know, we learn that um Ben pledges to learn from Wheeler. Um Audrey wants to know what Mr. Wheeler does, and um, John Justice Wheeler just wants to be called Jack. So what does he do? He buys bankrupt and failing businesses. He streamlines them. He brings them back up to speed, and then he usually sells them, uh, as he puts it. And Ben adds, while making a substantial profit, but not before making significant environmental concessions. Um And, you know, then he says, when Jack is finished, the waste is rerouted. The air, which is where he lights and puts out a cigar after one puff, the air is cleaner and the people happier. So, um, you know, Wheeler says, you're making me sound like Santa Claus. I'm a businessman. That's all. But, um, you know, what we get out of that is um, Ben really is actively trying to not smoke cigars anymore you know lighting and putting it out um because in in the way he says the air that's almost like he's saying him too you know it's like he wants uh, he wants him to be cleaner and not smoking cigars and uh you know be happier but you know then ben's removed from the table when someone comes over to him and says that the chef's just tried to stab jerry and um you know audrey's touchy. And, um, you know, now that her dad's not around, she says, which is it? Are we bankrupt or just failing? And, um, then he says, I'm, I'm doing an old, old friend a favor, which is where she says my father's, uh, my father's friends are rarer than the pine weasel. I mean, if you're, if you're thinking about it in a lodge spacey way and it's like, has Ben positively, um, manifested a helping hand out of nothing is he kind of like, Growing like Annie or whatever, (laughs) you know, like he, um, you know, or has he, um, has he always had this side of him, which is a little bit more optimistic and, uh, empathetic or, you know, at least, you know, (laughs) positive focused, um, and he could have changed over the years after Wheeler left town, you know, it's like, could Ben connect once with someone like Wheeler And, you know, he's just become hardened and more and more leaning into the dark um, over the years. And um, Wheeler says, let's just say that Ben was once a very good friend to me. And, you know, she just says, you are Santa Claus. And, you know, he calls out her dislike for him. But, you know, she says that she doesn't have an opinion either way. Um, And Wheeler asks, you know, but what if you did? And she says, if I did. I'd say that the Horns have managed to take care of themselves for more years than you can count, and desperate though we may seem, we will probably continue to do so in the foreseeable future. So she has pride, and she has strength here, and he likes it, and he says indeed. So, you know, now Audrey's trying to to figure out where he's been the past eight years, and she says, where have you been all this time? I mean, where when you weren't rescuing widows and orphans and making our world a better place to live in, you know, he, he doesn't illustrate that he has, you know, a darkness to him again, but, you know, just saying, you know, the far corners of the earth, I tell you, it's glorious out there, Audrey, all in all, it's good to be home. And, you know, he eyes, uh, he, he eyes her over a sip of coffee. And, um, you know, her response to that is I'm only 18. So, you know i'm pretty sure that means that she's actually into him but you know she's also letting a good man who's potentially a paragon know that what a good man needs to know to maintain paragon status so that her heart won't break again you know like cooper and um instead of um instead of you know saying like yes i know i have a boundary line here he just says and what exactly does that have to do with the price of eggs? So I'm pretty sure Audrey knows that that means that the door is open if she wants to pursue something. And um, she also notes that it's close to nine thirty, So she leaves for her roadhouse meeting. Um, but, you know, she definitely seems interested now and she actually calls him Jack on the way out, which he definitely notices. And, um, you know, he watches her leave and then he looks away like, what am I doing? Like, you know, like, I I think he actually is kind of struggling with this, uh, with this, um, age gap thing at the moment, but you know, that goes away very quickly because, you know, you're allowed to, you know, skip over the age gap problem, even if you're kind of a paragon and, you know, I'm, I'm saying that as of, you know, 1991, but yeah, I mean, like, while he, uh, well, he could be a manifested friend from <laughs> Ben Horn's new positive frequency or whatever um you could also say the same kind of thing for Annie, who um gets referenced in this episode and um you know the the first thing we see w- in that scene at the double R you know Shelly's back and she's ringing up a customer so um. And, and you know, Earl leaves, um, you know, the, the trucker Earl uh, leaves an envelope for Shelly right then at the counter also. Um, but, you know, we see we see Norma has her family back because, you know, this is the first time since what episode 13 or 14 that Shelly's back where she's supposed to be in um, in the double R family. And, um, you know, we, we've got Norma reinforcing everything in this thing. You know, what happens then? She's actually speaking to her real family on the phone as well. And, you know, she she tells Annie, just get on the next bus. I'll be waiting. Oh, honey, don't cry. It's going to be all right. I'll see you soon. I love you, too. So, you know, we've got Norma offering help and shelter. Um, You know, home is good. So she's able to offer it. And, uh, you know, she's offering comfort. And, you know, Annie on the other end says that she loves her. And um, Norm is able to say it, too. So then, you know, talking to Shelly after the phone call, we get to know that um, tomorrow Annie is going to arrive. She's coming from a convent. Then she says this to Shelly, which, you know, really perks up people's ears if you're if you're a a second time or more viewer. Um, When she was little, I always used to think Annie was from another place in time. So, you know, that leaves all kinds of room for theories that, um, that Annie could be a time traveler, kind of like what, uh, Cameron Claudier does with, um, with his, uh, fan film Queen of Hearts, um, or, you know, it could just as easily be this really intriguing, um, essay from, um, uh, from Lindsay Stamhuis and Aiden Hales, um, they, they, um, You know, not only do they host Bickering Peaks, but um, a couple months before the return started, um, they wrote this essay called Who's Annie for 25YL? And it kind of gives the possibility that Annie has dimensional aspects and uh, they basically make a case that she could be Lodge created entity. Not unlike the Tulpa concept that we'd learn about like 12 episodes later um, that we would see literally textually in the show months after this was written. So, like, I, I consider that kind of prophetic as far as like the kind of things that uh Twin Peaks trades in. And the fact that you can make a very easy case that Annie could be a lodge plant trying to lure Cooper into the lodge is... um you know, it it's pretty compelling to pay attention to. And, um, I'm, I'm definitely going to be going into that more as we go. But, um, as far as here, um, I'm just going to continue with what Norma says, which is, uh, guess the convent's been good to her in a way, hard to imagine her out in the world. So, you know, we've got, um, the convent being a place where you go after some trouble. Um, and, it's um you know it kind of close you know it, it uh you know keeps you away from the world it gives you a place to cocoon where it will help you it'll uh, be a good place for meditation and mindfulness and uh, basically like a place where you can find yourself and reintegrate if you're able to you know can't imagine her out in the world if we're talking about you know cocooning is a place where you uh you know, step away from reality or whatever, you know, you've got spirits that come from a place very similar to that. I mean, the, the spirits from a similar place, the red room, you know, they come out into twin peaks and they wreak all kinds of havoc or do whatever they can there. And I would say that that's probably like the, um, the scary side, the, the fear side of things. And then like, if Annie came from the, um, the positive side of that sort of an equation, um, um, She's possibly going to be um what what do you say like you know vulnerable to those um those darker spirits you know she could just be vulnerable like even if she was just a regular human being um you know she's been similarly disconnected from the world, and um you know she's been uh you know like regardless of twin Peaks's two sides, the metaphysical and the worldly side, if Annie's been. Away from the world for a while, she could be vulnerable to any sort of attack like that, so you know we're getting uh we're we're getting an idea of um Annie's naivete that's gonna be showing up and um also we're getting an illustration with Josie at the end of the episode how um evil spirits can intertwine with people. And, um, you know, it, it gives us room to associate that, you know, Annie could be more prone to connecting to this side of things than, um, than we will be led to believe, um, you know, when she starts showing up uh, next episode. Speaking of Josie and, you know, speaking of all the dark forces that end up taking her down to the end of the episode, you know, what happened to Josie? So I mean this whole episode basically focuses around Josie. It's the send-off for Joan Chen, it's the send-off for Josie and um you know she's she's in it a lot as the main focus I would say. And um you know things are closing in for her. She she basically ends up um with nowhere to go and you know she ends up trapped in something lodge adjacent. You know there there are a number of opposing factors, you know, closing in around her. Um in the real world as well here. And I'm going to start since like everything is so relationship focused in this episode. Um, you know, we'll we'll start with her and Harry. Um, so, you know, with Harry, the first time we see him after listening to Cooper's Windham Earl tape. um you know he he's reading a newspaper with the uh with the inside heading no clues for no clues to killer alongside a picture of uh Jonathan Kunigai so you know he's um he's trying to rationalize how this woman he's in love with uh could actually be connected to this and you know he's like you know is she or isn't she like i can't believe it but i think i have to I, you know it's like i think that's kind of his mindset at the beginning of the episode And, um, you know, then we see Hank immediately accusing her of killing Andrew Packard, um, you know, adding to Harry's doubts, which gets to Harry so much that, you know, he yells at Hank, you know, like, get him out of (laughs) here. And, um, you know, next time, uh, next time this comes around, you know, Albert takes Cooper out into the hallway, says he has hard evidence to connect Josie to, uh, Jonathan and, um you know, Cooper says that, you know, I can handle it, Uh, you know, meaning like don't get Harry involved, except, you know, Harry's out in the hallway staring at them because I think he heard the end of that. And, um, you know, then he just like walks off without saying anything to either of them. So that means that Harry has realized that Cooper's been hiding things about Josie from Harry as well, which, you know, again, I'm going to talk about that In that, you know, Cooper, why would he hide that from Harry? You know, it's like this is like a quintessential definition of false conflict that um, you do when you're just trying to up something uh, cheaply. You know, Cooper would have been discussing things with Harry, I'm pretty sure, in at least abstract terms to kind of like get him used to the idea that, like, you know, maybe there's something here. But, you know, um, at this point, Harry just goes to Blue Pine Lodge to find josie but um only Catherine and pete are there you know and then they give yet more conflicting information about his more and more suspicious lover you know what what he gets from Catherine and pete you know it's like well first of all you know we hear the knocking on the door and we see Catherine, you know um uh, you know drinking drinking coffee and reading great expectations and you know like it it eventually pans over to pete who's trying to tie a lure and um you know, he's um he's realizing that uh, yeah, it's like Catherine isn't gonna answer the door and he like you know, hilariously like puts everything down in like a really like uh put upon way. And uh you know, he answers up the door. And um what what Harry gets out of them is, you know, Catherine knows that Josie took her car without saying a word, but then, you know, helpful Pete, who's, you know, on you know, who's happy to help the law right now with chess and everything, you know, he says, oh, well, well, um, she told me the great Northern and, uh, you know, of course, Catherine just glares at him and says, oh, did she, (laughs) but, you know, then she actually does share a little bit more information and says, you know, she took a lot of things and expects that Josie was planning to stay for a while. And, um, you know, Harry sees the lay of the land here and knows who's going to be helpful. So he asks, you know, what else did she say, Pete? And, um, you know, that she's going to see an old friend and, you know, he asks who, but then Catherine tries to reclaim the narrative and says, you know, Oh, sheriff, I suppose it's been very hard on all of us learning the truth about Josie, except, you know, has Harry learned much of anything? And, um, what does Catherine think she's talking about? You know, what's come out publicly at this point? I guess the fix is already in for the frame job that Catherine's, um, you know, doing. And, um, you know, Harry pleads, you know, Catherine, who? And, you know, eventually Catherine says Eckert, Thomas Eckert. And, you know, Harry storms out on a mission. And, you know, then we get, you know, Catherine walking away saying, poor man. And, you know, Pete just glaring at Catherine, you know, like, what are you planning now? And, um, you know, the next time we see Harry um, is when he swoops in behind Cooper after she's confessed to shooting Cooper. And, you know, that she's not going back to jail again after she just got done shooting Thomas Eckert he finally finds Josie, but it's, it's when she's at her most desperate and deadliest. And, you know, this is like her most authentic self that he's finally confronted with at the end, which is kind of what he's been needing the whole episode. Now, as far as how Josie connects to Cooper and like shooting him and everything, um, you know, she's, she's tied into Cooper's plotline that way. And, uh, yeah, you know, we have Cooper going through this episode, um, mostly speaking with Albert at the beginning. Uh, you know, Albert connects the same bullet type removed from Cooper and guy's skull. So, you know, same bullet, same killer. Let's go get her. She's a menace. You know, Cooper says, you know, he's not mad at her, He, you know, which implies that he understands that circumstances can dictate a lot of bad choices when you're desperate. Basically he wants to leave Josie room to take personal accountability and confess herself rather than arresting her immediately. And, you know, Albert says, you know, maybe she'll grow wings and join the circus, which makes Albert angry and impatient. You know, when justice that he sees as obvious as being delayed, he gets angry and, um, you know, adversarial, but he respects Cooper a little bit more to lay into him than he'd did with like doc hayward early in season one that kind of thing but i'm glad to see signs of old albert um still maintaining consistency even though like now he's like you know the hugger of harry truman (laughs) anyway um cooper kind of takes this mindset about josie over to blue pine lodge where he actually speaks to her and uh, basically he says i want you to level with me about what happened in Seattle." And, um, you know, he, he, you know, he says he, that he could arrest her right now, but he came as Harry's friend. So, you know, respect for, um, for his buddy is the only thing, uh, trying to help him, uh, give her the room to actually confess and take personal accountability. And, you know, he, he tells Josie, I don't know what place he occupies in your heart, but I do know that you own his. I would think you'd like a chance to explain yourself to him. And you know, all she says is please go. And um Cooper basically gives her the ultimatum at this point. Um, you know, now that she hasn't taken him up immediately on the offer. He says, This is the end of it, Josie. There are no other options. I want you at the station house by nine o'clock, or I will come find you. Which is, you know, really funny because um uh, after nine o'clock rolls on and we're getting to the, um, you know, the, the roadhouse meeting at nine thirty. uh, we see Cooper in like a little white baseball kind of cap. And, uh, you know, he's like fly fishing with a vest on or practicing fly fishing on his own bed, you know, not, <laughs> you know, it, and this is after the nine o'clock deadline when he says that he's going to come find her. You know, though, I mean, maybe he was on the case and he was only practicing while waiting for a call from Catherine, you know, like, you know, like because you don't have a cell phone, you kind of have to wait by a phone back then. Um, But, you know, based on how he reacts to Catherine's phone call, it sounds like this was unexpected. So, you know, who knows what Cooper's thinking? Maybe he's just, you know, laying down the hard line for Josie here and, you know, he's not actually going to hunt her. You know, Albert comes back with even more connections to Josie with Kuna Guy's murder, um, and you know, again, I'll I'll refer to the fact that you know Thomas Eckert basically seemed to surprise Josie with the fact that he was dead last episode. So you know, there's a quality of a frame job being discussed here, and um, you know, either either Eckert was just interested in pointing out to Josie that he knows that she killed Kuna Guy, or Albert's doing that same thing with, um, you know, Leo Johnson probably being killed by Wyndham Earl in that autopsy report in uh, final dossier where, you know, he just jumps to conclusions based only on facts and, um, you know, isn't noticing that there's a frame job on Josie, but yeah, Cooper's still trying to handle Josie in relation to her having a chance to take personal accountability. And, you know, that's when he says, I think I can handle it. But then here he walks in and storms out. And then Albert says, I think you just did. But anyway, at that point, it ends up turning into night. And, you know, Cooper's practicing his fly fishing and he gets that call from Catherine that told him where, um, that Josie was here in Eckert's suite. You know, he's still in his fishing vest. Luckily, he took off the baseball cap. Uh, but, um, you know, he goes, he goes down the hallway. Um, and here's struggling inside the room. You know, it's like uh Josie saying, Don't touch me, don't hurt me. And then there's a second, like, don't hurt me, you know, like like she's um like almost outside of herself at this point. Um, while we hear Eckert's voice saying, you know, like you know, he's like trying to calm her and cajole her. You know, it's like I love you, da-da-da. And um, you know, then we hear a little bit of silence and then a gunshot. And Cooper busts open the door with a gun trained on them. And he finds Eckert and Josie in bed together with, you know, her arm is draped over him, almost like they're sleeping. You know, it's like there's no sign of struggle at this point and no sign of Josie's gun either at this point. Um, so, like, you know, them laying there like they're asleep almost. You know, it's like, are they based on the fact that, you know, Lodge Space kind of intrudes at this point? You know, it's like, are they kind of dreaming this death sequence into being? Like I, I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's an odd choice to have them laying there in a question. I mean, you know, we're, we're supposed to, as viewers wonder, you know, it's like, okay, who got shot here? Um, but it's, um, it's just a, it, it's almost a continuity gaffe. Um, but Eckerd gets up first and he's in a pajama, he's in pajamas with a robe on. So it's definitely not sexy time yet. Um, based on what they were talking about right before this. But, you know, there, there's blood all over his abdomen area. And, um, you know, he's laughing and he's advancing forward. Um, you know, even though Cooper says, stay where you are, but then eventually Eckert just falls to the floor and, um, Josie's revealed behind him sitting straight up, you know, she's like on her knees or whatever. And she's like leveling a gun at Cooper. So, you know, the gun was there somewhere. Um, and you know she's um she's obviously tense and trying to get out of this and you know she's saying he tried to kill me and um you know cooper just says is that what you'll say about me josie that i tried to kill you what about jonathan did he try to kill you too and she doesn't deny jonathan at this point i mean you know, obviously she's um uh, got other things on her mind and probably isn't uh, hearing things clearly but um her only answer to cooper was he was he was trying to take me back or he was taking me back, you know, I guess, which from a certain point of view is killing her. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe their discussion is like, you know, she couldn't get out of the country. So she had to kill him. I mean, uh, he, he was trying to take her out of the country, but for all the wrong reasons, finally. So like that wasn't going to work for her either. So I, I don't know. I mean, you know, she's, she, she's complicated. (laughs) But it's at this point that we finally get a resolve on the season one cliffhanger uh, in a way. When he says, you know, why do you shoot me, Josie? And then she says, because you came here, I knew this day was going to come. So, like, why did she say it like that? Um, you know, it's like, did she have kind of a a prophetic vision like Sarah, where, like, she could kind of see that, like, maybe he was there as part of her death? You know, it's like she could she could see the, you know, like once you're in the lodge, you're always in the lodge. So you've got this ability to kind of have foresight. And she knew that, um, you know, Cooper was going to be there at the end. I don't know. But, you know, I mean, otherwise, like if it's not connected to anything like that, it's just sheer gobbledygook. (laughs) But, um, you know, her, her final statement here is I'm not going to jail. I can't. But you know, this is when when Harry swoops in too and it gets all lodgy. But you know, it, it wasn't the Lodge that exactly pulled her to this. It was actually Catherine and Andrew's planning. And um, you know, now now we're basically gonna look at um the the two people who want revenge on their business rivals who had made an attempt on Andrew's life. And we're gonna dig into Catherine and Andrew's plot. So You know after after a fun scene at the beginning of the episode where you know pete makes andrew breakfast into a dog face shape and you know he and andrew just laugh like chums and um, you know catherine just says you two bring out the worst in each other you know pete leaves saying goodbye you sweet you sweet packards and uh (laughs) you know catherine says you know they're behaving like hardy boys on stormy weather and you know she learns at this point that um You know, I I basically only bring that up, not for plot purposes, but because Pete's great. Um, But, you know, they they shift, uh, you know, Catherine and and Andrew, now that they're alone, they shift into um, their plans where she learns that, you know, still considered dead, Andrew is going to leave for Paris tomorrow because investments are set for ghostwood. So I guess internationally you can be known as alive, even though in your own country you're, you know, faking your death. I don't know. But, um, that means that, um, you know, Wyndham Earl isn't the only one in town that has multiple phases of shady plans afoot. And, uh, you know, will that come back later? Will that explain where Andrew actually was all those months? Uh, yeah, who knows? But, um, as far as josie's concerned they have to have andrew in the room in the space where josie's gonna be um because you know she has to know about andrew um you know she has to know that andrew's alive and of course you know she comes in right then and um you know he says i'm home did you miss me and you know this is where she faints the first time and um you know that kind of That kind of bookends, you know, it's like Harry yells at the beginning and the end of the episode. Uh, Josie faints at the beginning and the end of the episode. So, you know, she's bookending how she dies in the presence of another controller from her past. And, you know, while while she's passed out, you know, he's he's all blase about it to Catherine. She's like, oh, she looks surprised. And uh, this makes Catherine laugh. Um, You know, so she's uh, she's not able to enjoy, you know, random food, um, you know, like physical humor. She, she likes this kind of dark joke. And, uh, you know, she says she has her charms, but not for long. So, you know, they're, they're plotting her exit in one way or another. Um, and you know, this makes Andrew laugh more than his breakfast plate presentation. And, um, they obviously know what they're setting her up for at this point. And you know we know that they know it. So you know the next time we see Catherine, you know she uh, she swoops in right after Cooper talks to Josie, and um, you know Josie's majorly upset after Cooper confronts her and basically gives her the nine o'clock ultimatum to tell Harry something. And um, you know, snooping Catherine enters cheerily, like I just saw Agent Cooper leave. Was that a social call? So you know she's feigning concern for Josie, and. um you know, then then she speaks of what Eckert told Catherine. Um, you know, Eckert is not entirely unsympathetic to he, to her, but he does insist on seeing Josie alone tonight. Although actually, never mind, Eckert hadn't actually told her this. You know, she's just telling Josie that she made an arrangement with Eckert, but he's going to or she's going to her. Um I mean <laughs> Josie is going to Eckert um under false pretenses and um you know basically Josie tells Catherine here that you know he'll kill me but you know Catherine's biggest concern is you know what's he going to do when he finds out that Andrew is alive so you know that's why Josie was allowed to learn uh that that fact you know it's like now that she's complicit in the secret um that really will give Eckert reason to kill Josie. Um, You know, um, and Catherine puts it right out there. You know, it's like, won't Mr. Eckert think that you've betrayed him? And, you know, Josie's losing it with each additional sentence because what Catherine's saying is accurate, even though Catherine's leading the witness big time. And, you know, Catherine's all nonchalant. And, you know, uh, Josie asks, you know, it's like, maybe you can help me. I think I've gone mad. So this is a call for help that Catherine completely queued up and was waiting for. Um, so her advice is you will certainly have to face Mr. Eckert sooner or later. And, you know, she pauses to leave room for Josie to agree with her, which of course never happens. And she says, tell him the truth. And, uh, Josie responds only by staring at her. And, um, you know, Catherine's like, ah, tell him whatever you want in a tone like, you know, God, this person isn't responding to anything. <laughs> and um, then then she tells Josie, just pray that he believes you. And, you know, this is when she rummages at the bookshelf for a while. And she says, oh, here they are, you know, conspicuously leaving a gun behind for Josie to take. And, you know, Josie sees it. She lifts it. She embraces it like an answered prayer. Uh, You know, of an escape path. So, you know, Catherine here has set her up with the murder weapon and set her up with the occasion to use the murder weapon. And, um, you know, Josie's getting ready next to confront her tormentor. And this is when Andrew takes the opportunity to feed her the plan so while she's getting ready we see the black ceramic dogs from the pilot and then we see the same mirror that josie is painting lipstick on her face with. or uh she she was uh what, what was she painting uh I, I think she was uh um doing her eyebrows at that time but like here she's painting lipstick on on her um and um you know, it's like it it's the same kind of shot bookending Josie's entire appearance on the show. Um, and, you know, mirrors are coded now, especially after Leland and Bob, that mirrors are coded as like a place where you can see Lodge space visibly by now. So, you know, she's staring into this void and, um, you know, she's not humming this time either. Um, so, you know, was was this entrapment you know this um this entanglement with all these problems the same kind of feeling that Josie felt in the pilot um you know all all the mysteriousness um is it is it related basically like is this the same kind of mysteriousness that um we didn't have any context for back then but now we do um but anyway she gets a knock at the door and um you know she turns away from the mirror, and the mirror isn't even in the shot and we're watching her real eyes looking at the door when she says, "Come in and we get her observing the entrance like really spookily, like some person is walking in, and um you know it's like we kind of wonder if it's all uh, we all wonder if it's Harry because he just left to look for her like the scene before this um but we find out that it's Andrew and we get them having a goodbye conversation you know he he says to beginnings and endings and the wisdom to know the difference uh and you know this is when she begins her panicked breathing and you know she says i'm sorry andrew and you know andrew basically like lets her know what's going on in his head where i hated you at first perfectly normal response and you know this is when he sits down and says as my anger diminished, I recall that Eckhart has a way of persuading people to do anything. It was his idea, of course, you know, pumping her for answers here. And then she says, yes, he made me do it. And, um, you know, kneels before him. And, um, you know, and then she continues and says, and he said, you never loved me. Just married me to get back at him. And, you know, we could tell that she's afraid here. And he says, that's not true. I did love you very much. Of course, Uh, uh, of course, the same cannot be said for you. And this is when he says, please, Josie, there will be no more lies between us. You had a job to do and you did it. And now you'll be paying the price. Which is, you know, actually really cold, but really accurate. Uh, He continues, every action has its consequences, my dear. The police are closing in. If you don't take action, you'll be sleeping in a jail cell tonight. And, you know, this is him reframing, possibly oversimplifying um, everything that could be happening to her with a purpose. And, um, you know, the, the purpose is basically to say, this is what's going to happen to you. Believe me. And, um, you know, since he seems to know what's going on and she's freaking out, she says, um, what can i do you must help me and um you know so she has the fear and the helplessness now and then she asks for help from the other co-conspirator uh in her in her um death collision with thomas Eckert. um <clears throat> so the plan that he gives is you must see Eckert. and you know she shakes her head no but um you know, he continues, perhaps you were meant to be together all along. I'm sure he truly loves you. And, um, you know, more silence shaking from her because you know he is totally in her head right now. And, you know, he, he says that he doesn't know I'm alive. He can get you out of this country. So in other words, he can save you from tonight's jail cell, but only if you stay complicit about my status, you are complicit here in knowing that I'm alive and, um, you need him to get out of the country. So he's putting her in a bad place and also being aligned with him and Catherine. Um, And, you know, now, because of what Andrew said, she will go to Thomas Eckert like Catherine wanted her to do uh, because Eckert is her only exit strategy. And, you know, she'll keep quiet to ensure that Eckert won't try to kill her first before she uses Catherine's gun and just like Catherine uh Andrew says go to him Josie and then you know touches her touches his hand to her cheek and says now and you know she tries to plead with Andrew uh, with an Andrew but you know all he says is we won't speak again and then he walks out then um honestly Norma does the same kind of disconnecting from Hank as uh Andrew just did here except of course um In that case, Hank is the one who attempts the manipulation and fails. And here it's inverted, and uh, it's the manipulator in the same power position that Norma was in. Uh, So, you know, inverted. um, You know, Josie's in the negative uh, frequency. (laughs) And, um, yeah, of course, uh, the manipulator wins here. So, you know, she ends that scene holding her face and crying. And, um, you know, the next time we see um you know the catherine and andrew we have catherine feeding the name thomas eckert to harry when he comes over looking for josie um and you know then we have andrew now queuing up thomas to want to kill josie ensuring that andrew's rivals could be buried side by side um so he basically reveals himself to thomas in a great northern elevator and uh, Eckert says i don't believe in ghosts and um you know andrew says you deserve haunting to be sure look closer thomas i'm alive and um you know Eckert is angry he's like how and um you know now we've got andrew lying here um saying she warned me off herself couldn't bear to see her beloved husband perish or more realistically i suppose she felt that there was some advantage to be gained so you know getting eckerd mad about jealousy and a lack of obedience you know even though she actually was obedient and stayed true to to thomas's plan um and you know eckerd basically just says she betrayed me which is a lie but you know it gets him on the frequency of wanting to kill josie at this point or being able to and you know all ecker uh, all Andrew says to that is we're all familiar with betrayal because you know it's like a, a kettle is angry with a pot you yeah. <laughs> and um you know Ecker changes his tune, Josie is mine, she belongs to me, so you know we get the patriarchy, the slavery the uh you know she is the millennium falcon to them kind of vibe, and um you know while he's there, Andrew goes at him with even more to be jealous about, and uh you know um. Andrew says, you know, Thomas love will break your heart. Happily long ago, I lost interest, but Josie loses her heart with alarming regularity, which, you know, is the exact opposite logic that he used while guilting Josie earlier in that, you know, he thinks that, um, you know, Josie wasn't able to love him. Uh, but you know, now, you know, she can love anybody, uh, because that gets Eckert more and more jealous. And, um, you know Andrew brings up the local sheriff of all people, so um you know there's more trouble coming from josie uh with the sheriff um but you know what why I bring up this in particular here is because uh Eckert says I have taken care of that, referencing what's going to happen with um Jones trying to seduce and then kill um uh Harry. Um, you know, in a couple episodes, so you know, it's it's odd, but you know, it's it's actually noted here that Eckert really is like making some kind of plan for that. But you know, it's all persuasion here from Andrew to make Eckert, um, you know, want to protect himself from Josie, you know, possibly needing lethal force because, um, Andrew basically says, you know, as someone who, uh, as someone who was once your friend, I come back with a warning. Josie's coming back to you. Be very careful. So yeah, Catherine said that Eckert wanted Josie to meet her or to meet with him. But here, uh, we know that's a lie because Andrew is basically saying, you know, it's like, Josie's coming to you. So, you know, you might need to be on your guard and, you know, And now that you're completely jealous and angry that she betrayed you, um, you know, be ready for her. (laughs) So, yeah, to to sum it all up, Cooper's found his attacker so that the law isn't really going to be on Josie's side. Harry's betrayed by possibly a number of people. So love isn't necessarily going to be able to come and save her. And Josie um, ends up killing Thomas. So she can't escape the country through his way. And um, she has both the FBI and law enforcement right in front of her. So she's either dead or going to jail. And she has expressed that she's definitely not going to jail. So what's left? You know, I mean, (laughs) with all of that on her plate, you know, is, is this amount of fear and worry and being trapped what brought on her lodge adjacent death all right so let's break down the scene we've got we've got josie answering cooper's why did you shoot me josie and she says because you came here i knew this day was going to come so um i asked earlier you know why is is she lodgy like sarah where she just has like a precognition um is it Lodgy because of her particular life and death related fear and desperation that she has right now? Um, you know, she ends with, I'm not going to jail, I can't. So, you know, bottom line, she's caught in the act and she's declaring that she's um refusing to accept uh, you know, accept the uh circumstances that would come from all of her previous actions. So, you know, she's definitely showing the wide of her eyes to, you know, any any possible culpability that she may deserve at this point for all her um dark dealings, like, you know, attempting to kill Andrew, et cetera, et cetera, all her crimes. Uh, but then, you know, Harry enters and, you know, she's she's revealed as ready to attack in desperation. And, you know, he sees this. You know, he finally sees this, um, this darker side of her in action. And he yells, you know, put it down, Josie, put it down. And, you know, so the bottom line there is she's caught in the act by the person that she loves. And, um, the very next thing she says is Harry, forgive me. I never meant to hurt you. So, you know, she's, um, she is taking responsibility there at least, um, that, you know, she got someone, You know, you know, someone who wasn't involved, involved in it. And um, this is when she seizes up. And, you know, the um, the same strings that kick in when people have shaky hands in episode 27, that's happening here with Josie. And, um, you know, she pulls the gun to her chest, kind of like when she was hugging it right after she got it from Catherine. And, you know, she was believing this gun to be her answer, her easy out And, um, you know, now she's holding it to her chest while she's having trouble breathing and she collapses. So, I mean, it's, it turned out to be an easy out for her. (laughs) It's just not in the way she was expecting and not in the way anyone wanted. And, um, you know, Harry runs right over to her and embraces her and says her name three times while Cooper looks on. And, um, you know, eventually Harry looks up and says, she's dead. But because he's holding her, he's hugging her, and, um, you know, he has love for her still. Um, In a way, she has been forgiven by him, in a way, at least halfway. And, um, you know, this forgiveness that Harry seems to give her upon death seems to actually trigger the lodginess and you know possibly is that you know that halfway for for forgiving um is that possibly what keeps her from going all the way into lodge space you know it's like our grief our want for the person to stay alive does that kind of keep them halfway like we can't let go of them, we can't let 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 them have an afterlife. So, you know, she's kind of stuck in between. It's possible that that's part of the equation. But you know, at this point, we hear the tone that's associated with the giant, or the um, or really the uh, the man from another place rubbing his hands in the um the original Red Room dream. You know, like when that when that shadow is floating around behind the curtains, and you know, it's just that hum sound, um that is happening here and harry and josie disappear off the bed but the bed remains and you know we have a spotlight shining on an otherwise like shadowy dark room um and uh you know we have uh we we see cooper in his pov and he's also spotlighted from somewhere so you know there's two lights shining one toward the bed and one on cooper yeah, well that's happening. We hear Bob laughing. You know, it's like the the laughing of him begins before we see him and then we see the arm reaching out first, which will also be echoed in episode 27. Um, you know, with and and also, you know, it's his left arm, which is the arm that goes numb and um You know, Bob eventually crawls all the way up onto the bed with his hands on the bed, almost in like a dog pose or something. And, you know, uh, Bob is hamming it up with words and saying, Coop, what happened to Josie? And then, you know, just more laughter. And, um, you know, he fades out at this point while the hum remains. And we start hearing the saxophone music of, you know, Dance of the Dream Man. Plus, you know, the man from another place himself actually fades in here and he dances on the bed. So, you know, what are these lodge spirits, you know, like what, what does their presence mean? So, you know, Bob could have been there due to connections with Josie. But, you know, even if he didn't have connections to Josie, he could at least be there because of the connections with Cooper, you know, from the end of uh, episode sixteen, um, you know, where he threatens Leland and kills him, and basically, you know, threatens that he has a connection to Cooper, knowing things about Pittsburgh. Um, you know that you you can explain that in either direction, and it could make sense. But why would the man from another place be there? Um, and in um, in essential wrapped in plastic. Um, Michael J. Anderson was interviewed by John Thorne, and he said, He said this about the man from another place. He says, I think that maybe because my character stands between the Black Lodge and the White Lodge in the waiting room, I really represent a chaos or uncertainty. Have you ever experienced something that was so outside what you normally believe that for the next few minutes you were likely to believe anything? Certain traumatic events can do that to you. That is, why my, that is what my character really is. Everybody is asking, is, is he this? Is he that? Yeah, he's all of those things. He is as much as that moment of uncertainty offers. I think he represents straight trauma. That's what my character is. Josie was killed on the bed, and that trauma stayed with the bed. So that's an interesting way to put it. I mean, he he's spoken with Lynch, um, you know, more than we'll ever know. And I'm assuming that he kind of feels like he's a talisman, kind of like how the the um, jumping man is has been told um, by Lynch that, you know, think of yourself as a talisman. He told the jumping man actor and, um, you know, maybe. Maybe the man from another place is kind of a representation of of trauma, um, you know a um, a talisman of it. I don't know, but I mean, you know, him him being a talisman of the the in between state makes a lot of sense. And um, the fact that Anderson thinks that his character does stand between the Black Lodge and the White Lodge in the waiting room really helps with that with that um, understanding. And it really would explain why the man from another place would be there, um, particularly associated with uh, the death of Josie. But so where we're at now is the um, the man fades out and the spotlight in the doc- darkness leaves with him just as uh, crying Harry holding Josie returns. And, you know, he's rocking Josie just as if nothing had happened. And, um, you know, we could tell the Cooper is stunned here. And, you know, that 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 um, stompy soundscape that happened when he first saw the giant, that is remaining in the background here. Um, and that continues to play throughout the rest of the scene. And, you know, OK, Harry is rocking Josie. He's crying. He's saying her name over and over and over again. And we pan over to the drawer pole and we actually see Josie's face you know, superimposed on the door pole. And there's this like slightly glowing edge to the frame of that. And, um, you know, she's kind of looking around almost like she's in the Brady Bunch, uh, opening where she's kind of looking up off to the side for a little bit. And, um, you know, then she actually tries to push her face through it and you can see the wood like, you know, stretching, um under the pressure of her trying to do it and you know that's not entirely unlike when cooper's head is being like suctioned toward the outlet in part three of the mauve zone so like there's certain kind of stretching that happens when you're in one state um transitioning over to another or trying to transition to another state so you know you can kind of tell that she's in one of those kind of states which matches up with um you know the body double laying on the floor um of episode twenty nine in the red room with her head beyond the curtains that um you know Frank Silva told John Thorne about in a wrapped in plastic interview um you know that person's head could actually be stuck in that doorknob, uh, yeah in that in that um drawer knob. And, um, you know, maybe Harry calling for Josie over and over again, maybe she didn't want to make it all the way in there and she couldn't get pulled all the way in, um, because she was stopped in that way. And that's why she couldn't transition entirely into the red room. And, you know, her being stuck kind of in between also matches a quote that Mark Frost gave Brad Dukes in reflections. Um, he says there, I think that was something David and I talked about, and he had the notion that she should be lost in another realm, but imprisoned in a way, and that it shouldn't, be a phys- it shouldn't be physical as much as a metaphysical prison. We decided at the end of her arc that we didn't want to do another melodramatic death. We wanted to do something that had some mythological feel, and the next thing you know, she's in a drawer pull. So, yeah, was Harry's grief and love the final ingredient to get her particularly trapped between love and fear in the waiting room? Um, You know, did she before this, did she make a deal with the denizens? I mean, you know, Bob doesn't usually attach to people unless there's some sort of gaslighting that he achieved with a person, you know, some sort of agreement that he, um, you know, used their appetite to agree to. Um, that would really stand a reason. We don't get any information on it, but, um, you know, they instinctively wanted Josie to be, uh, I mean, um, yeah, Josie to be the sister of Judy when it came to, you know, all the, all the writing when they were thinking about things in, um, Fire Walk With Me, uh, per, per Robert Engels, the co-screenwriter and, you know, current, um, writer of, uh, you know, Twin Peaks. Uh, yeah. So like he, um, he could have connected Josie to Judy in that way. And that would also be another way of her being connected to the lodge spaciness. Um, so, you know, a previous agreement with, you know, characters like Bob, um, that would, it would stand a reason that it's, you know, plausible. Obviously, you have to go into fan fiction to really make that happen. (laughs) But, you know, you could go there if you wanted to. Though it could also just be simple that, you know, her fear is what attracted that kind of denizen. You know, like, whereas um, Cooper's injury attracted the helping variety of the giant because Cooper didn't want to die. Whereas I think um, Josie died of fear. You know, Cooper looked through his fear in that moment when he was on the floor of the Great Northern. You know, that's why he attracted the positive frequency denizens. Um, you know, it could be that simple because the Great Northern has sort of a portal thing and... um You know, it could be simply that, you know, if Cooper was on the bed, maybe he would have attracted the wrong kind of lodge spirit. You know, is it the bed itself that attracts that kind of thing? Um, I mean, the trauma attaching to the bed, that makes a certain amount of sense, like like Michael J. Anderson said in that quote that I read earlier. Um, But, you know, the bed is where Cooper had his dream from. And, you know, his bed and her bed are the same kind of bed, just like there are many drawer pulls in the world. And in, in many rooms, um, just like in Lynch's Log Lady intro, um, there are many beds in the Great Northern. And, you know, Cooper found his way into the Red Room from one of them. So maybe Josie found her way into the Red Room from also one of them with the same kind of humming. You know, then then of course there's also the connections that Cooper has to the Red Room already. And, you know, it makes sense that, you know, if you're in the Red Room once, you're always in it, always able to recognize it. And, you know, Cooper's able to see what happens from the Red Room at the point of someone's transitioning from life to death. You know, it could be just Cooper being able to see what always happens around people when they die. You know, it's like, who knows? Um, but, yeah, there's the hum that will begin to happen now, and you know it's it's the hum of the great northern consistent all over peaks, you know, I mean, just ask Ben and Beverly, you know, even ask James, you know it's like the the great northern hums, you know Ben Horn will know it, Pete will know it later on, um you know in episode twenty seven so yeah i mean the great northern could possibly just be one of those transition states because i mean those beds aren't in people's homes it's where you sleep in between being at home and being at home again you are away you are in between your spots when you're at home so um you know there's so many reasons why it would be easy for josie to um slip into an in-between state here and it's hard to nail down any of them but you know we we've got the observer effect that you know cooper is the one who saw it not harry just cooper so it could just be a cooper thing with the with the red room entities and yeah like i said yeah any more definition uh you're getting into fan fiction so i'm gonna i'm gonna say good night here and uh do the do the sign out you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and 25YL Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. You can visit ruminationsradionetwork.com for additional great shows such as Brevity Box and Modernist Monastery and join all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my full electricity nexus column, at 25yearslatersite.com, and join us on Discord at 25YL, a Twin Peaks server. If you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Podcast at gmail.com or catch us on any of the socials with it. And we'll see you next time as we look into episode 24, the 25th overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. Deepen it's and expand, and the, expand. the universe. The show takes place The in. show takes place in. they uh, They'll really dig it. This is a, a gift to all the fans.